it's it's bigger than hard, right? Like it's bigger than frustrating. It's like you go through the resentment, you go through the anger, you go through, I didn't ask for this, mm-hmm. right? Like you go through all of that. And the, the thing that has to be stronger yep. than your grief is your love for that person to say like, okay, and I'm going to get up and try my very best tomorrow, even in, even if I failed today. A new diagnosis has a way of clarifying the things that are important. We all age, we all get sick, we all die. There's deep meaning to be found in living with a serious illness. There's fun to be had in someone's last days. And there's a lot to be learned from a person whose finish line is in sight. The conversation you're about to hear is about sharing experiences, finding what's meaningful, leaving space for sadness, leaning into grief, laughing about absurdities, and thinking together about an experience that we will all have someday. My name is Cody Huffstedler. I'm a palliative care chaplain in Denver, Colorado, and I interview people who are coming to the end of their life. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You can say all the negative things you want about social media, and you'll be right. But luckily for me, two things can be true, and social media has brought some very inspiring people into my life. And this week's guest is one of those very inspiring people that I have only met because of social media. This week's episode is a little bit of a departure. Jessica Guthrie is not sick. She's the caretaker for her mother, who is slowly coming to the end of her life. Jessica's mother has Alzheimer's dementia, and Jessica tells her story on Instagram at Career Caregiving Collide. As I've watched Jessica share her story and the story of her mother, I've realized that when a patient can't express the feelings that come along with a serious illness, the caregiver often becomes a kind of proxy for those feelings and often carries a burden for both of them. So I invited Jessica to chat with me, which she graciously accepted. I hope you enjoy hearing this caregiver, advocate, and educator talk about the difficulties, frustration, joy, and deep meaning she finds in caring for her mother as she's nearing her finish line. This is Dying to Tell You. Well, maybe you can introduce yourself and then we can talk a little bit about how things are. Yeah. Okay. Hello. I'm Jessica Guthrie. I am uh, the full-time caregiver of my mother who is living with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, She has been living with Alzheimer's disease for a little over nine years. I say been living, so I would say officially diagnosed since official diagnosis. Um, we are um, currently in what I would consider one of the later stages of Alzheimer's disease. My mother is no longer ambulatory, fully incontinent, fully dependent on me for every activity of her daily life. Um, she has also reached the point where like we're using a soft foods diet um, and we need assistance in doing um, getting out of the bed, leaving the home, all the things. Um, And so it's definitely a new chapter for us. Uh, But as her full time caregiver, I am here to be proximate and present and to do the very best that we can. And that's all we can do as caregivers, the very best we can. Are are there markers in your mind for the stages? I mean, I know they're not like stage one, stage two, but um, you said this is kind of a new stage. How long has it been like this and what were the markers that that made you think this was, you know, a different stage? Yeah. You know, when it comes to forms of dementia, especially Alzheimer's disease, I think a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, it's just the memory, right? Like, and you're like, wait, no, that's one small sliver of this disease. That's actually like the easiest part Mm -hmm. of this disease. I tell people that like my mom didn't get this way until 2022, right? My mother was always walking, talking up and down the stairs in and out the house until her mobility started to change, which was, um, I would say like January, 2022 was when things started to like decline with her walking gait, her ability to like hold herself up. Um, And then we fast forward to about March, 2022, after doing a round of physical therapy and occupational therapy and realizing that, her inability to follow commands and also right like hold herself up with her abs and like mm-hmm. be able to like mm-hmm. sit up and stand up all those things were starting to diminish 
Um, and so I would say like some of these physical changes started happening um, spring 2022. And then I put my mom on hospice May 2022 because she had lost significant amount of weight. Mm-hmm. She had had a couple mm-hmm. of infections. She had been in the hospital right. multiple times that year. She was experiencing falls and she was no longer ambulatory. All of those things as a Alzheimer's disease patient qualified for her for hospice. Right. But even when she was on hospice for like the last year, my mom was still, you know, engaging with me and energized. Mm. And so I would say we didn't get to the point that we currently are. Honestly, it's like the last, to the last six months. Okay. Has, has, I've started to see like a more drastic change and mm. like the like reduction of words used. Like she's now majority nonverbal. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, it, it happens. It's a slow disease. Yet when the decline starts to happen, it happens real quick. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Real quick. When she was diagnosed, how how long was it before, you know, between the time that you noticed something was a little off to when she was diagnosed and kind of how that went? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that was now it feels a like long a lifetime time ago. ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but when I think about it, you know, I so I context I'm an only child. My mom's a single mom, and so she lived in Virginia. And at the time, I, you know, 25, 26 years old, living in Dallas, Texas, building my career. Um, and so I had just finished teaching and I was now joining a nonprofit, like very career driven. Um, however, when I came home for holidays, um, I noticed that my mom, who also was an educator, was like repeating herself a lot. Or she'd be like, you know, what did I say? Or, you know, ask me mm-hmm. the same questions. I'm like, that seems a little off, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was still working full time, oh, you know, okay. still driving herself to school. Like people think that things stop immediately. And it's like, no, no. CG was driving and doing everything for the longest time. Um, but she started to like be really confused around things that, were fairly basic for her and i'll never forget she was taking a trip to chicago to visit her brother a trip that she takes every summer and this is what summer 2014 and you know she would take the commuter train to the airport in dc get on the plane and then navigate her way through chicago airport hop in a taxi like it's a lot but it it was i mean it was what she did and i'll never forget getting a phone call she 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 hadn't even got on the commuter train yet and she was like, Jessica, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm confused. I'm scared. And I remember being like, oh my gosh. And so I had her call me every step of the way until she got to Chicago. And I said, sit down. I'm going to have my uncle like find you. Right. And he had never had to pick her up from the airport. Yeah. And I was like, this, this seems off. This seems off. And so like, there's a number of moments where you're like, this is not quote unquote normal. Yeah. And so my my uncle took her to Rush Memory Center in Chicago to do like a basic assessment. At that time? At that time. Yeah. Some like he's a doctor and so they were he was like, no. we going, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so um they essentially said, you know, there is some signs of some sort of cognitive impairment. And so I took that and ran. It's like I took that to then do my own research to find a neurologist and like figure out how do we get her officially quote unquote tested and that process takes some time don't get me wrong that's the first time the first big thing that you noticed was this inability Mm -hmm. to navigate something that she'd done a hundred times before um Mm -hmm. between that and getting the diagnosis what's that how how long yeah i don't i can't tell you the exact months but i would say like six months months because I, I Jessica did not live with her. She was also like there yeah, were, I was. Yeah. I was in Texas, right. and also right like for the most part she was still functioning, and so there was an urgency. But like at the same time, our healthcare system doesn't actually move that urgently. Nothing's urgent. Um, yeah. and so, <laughs> you have to get appointments. You got to wait. You got to just cross your fingers and hope. And so, you know, I, I, I remember doing neurologist visits like in 2014 well i say diagnosis in air quotes because dementias and types of dementias and what's causing dementias are all really like complex and so when we say getting a diagnosis my mom went through a series of tests with their neurologist she got a couple of scans 
Um, and then he says, based off of all that we've done, it is likely that your mother is like experiencing early onset Alzheimer's disease. We will have to monitor over the course of the next few months to see like if other things pop up, right? Because this could be FTD. It could be something, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there's a number of things, uh, but it, I mean, it turned out to be Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. And then so 2014, we, we tried to start the school year. Mm. And then September 2014, she got in a big car accident oh. driving to church. And then at the end of October, her principal was like, Jessica, what's wrong with your mom? I was like, what do you mean? Well, she's forgetting basic routine. She's not mm -hmm. picking up the kids from the cafeteria. She's not doing her job. She's, you know, not following through like she used to. Mm -hmm. She's repeating herself. And so then that was November. Yeah, I put her on FMLA from work. And then she retired, quote unquote, because I didn't tell anyone she was retired. Right. Not, I didn't tell her she was on FMLA because of Alzheimer's disease. I officially retired her summer so june 2015 mm -hmm. yeah i'm curious to hear a little bit about um what that was like for you to get that call from your mom when she's having difficulty navigating a thing that she's done a lot in chicago yeah you know when you don't know a lot about a disease you or depending on your understanding of a disease, I think it actually determines your emotional reaction. Yeah. So I think um, because I don't I didn't know anything beyond like, oh, yeah, her memory or like this is just confusing. I I probably was more like frustrated. OK. That like my mom could not do things or like she like it was an, it was frustrating for me, annoying right. for me. Versus being like my mom has a you know terminal diagnosis. She's going to die in six months. Like that's not. That's not the reaction you have yeah. with Alzheimer's disease. And so I, I, I say this all the time. I'm just like, I didn't actually have an emotional reaction. Obviously, there's emotions, but I didn't have like a sad mm -hmm. or like, a oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. It was a let's get to work. We need to create systems. We need to figure out how my mom's going to still be independent. At this point, she's still at this point, she was still working. Right. right? Like, how do we preserve her dignity? Mm -hmm. How do we like it was it was a, I don't live here. So like, what do I need to put in place so that when I fly to go to Texas for two weeks, she can do these things. Right. Like it, it, it very much I went into go mode. Right. And so I didn't make the space to feel how hard this was until I, you know, flew back to Texas. It was sitting in my own bed away from my mom being like, oh my gosh, that's exhausting. Right? Mm. <laughs> that's, 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 that, that, like, I don't, I, how am I doing this? Or, you know, my, it was the, no one understands all that I'm doing behind the scenes. No one gets it. That is absolutely um, and true. So yeah. I used to say, I mean, I don't wish this now, knock on wood, and I pray that this is not what's coming, but I was, at the time, I'd be like, I just wish she had a cancer diagnosis <laughs> because we know how to, navigate a cancer diagnosis. I had no idea I'd be on this journey for nine years, fast forward to present day. You uh, know what I mean? Like, and yeah. so no one, no one tells you what to do when it came to Alzheimer's disease. Everyone has strong opinions about how you're going to die when you have a terminal disease. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Liver failure, can't like all mm -hmm. that. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't have enough to react to. I just had my mom being annoying to react <laughs> to. Right? Like, yeah. And I had like a, a, like a, a reputation to protect, to react to. Her reputation? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Because, you know, I think there are stigmas against quote unquote all timers, which is not how you say it, but people say it like that, you know? Um, yeah. And it's like, it was so much more than that. And my mom was someone who was very like accomplished, prideful, bold. And uh, I wanted for people to still see her as Constance, mm. not Constance who can no longer, right. you know, remember who you are. Yeah. How did she take it? Yeah, I think my mom knew for a very long time that mm. she was, that things were changing. She could never really say like, I have Alzheimer's disease. No, of course. But she knew that, you know, she was like, I don't, I, I can't remember or like mm -hmm. something is off um, or, you know, what's really sad is like, you know, people don't, people, people don't come around anymore, you know, like, so seeing she's always been in this, she's always been aware that things were becoming different. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she 
which I think we see with a lot of patients, it's like they want to hold on. And so I'd be like, let's talk about your home and like what you want to do with your home. And she'd be like, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm going to hold on to this thing. You know, we're like, let's talk about this. What do you want to do? Oh, I don't want to talk about that. And you're like, okay, okay. You know something's happening and you were trying very hard to not release control. And I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Nobody wants to lose control. Mm-hmm. Um, we see a lot in the hospital when people uh, have dementia, especially people who, like your mom, are educated and accomplished and um, very intelligent people that have dementia. Um, they mask really well. You know, they can fool nurses who mm-hmm. are in there for five minutes and they could tell a story. Mm-hmm. Oh, they can tell a story. And they can tell you where they are and they seem, you know, perfectly fine. And And, and then if you stay in there for another 10 minutes or 20 minutes, they'll tell you that same story two or three more times. (laughs) But if you don't, if you're not there, you know, they can mask it and, um, and people don't really realize it uh, a lot of times until later. Exactly. And so hard for family caregivers too, because it's just like, you know, people come around once in a blue moon. And so then yeah. when like family comes around or like friends and they're like, oh, well, your mom, she sounds so great. She's fine. She looks so great. And you're like, you have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at this, in the, in the 10 minutes that you were here, I can tell you she was putting on a show and that's exhausting. Like you, you don't mm. see, and I, 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 obviously I will never know like the inner workings of her brain, although I'm yeah. so curious, you know, yeah. but like how much work and effort that takes to show up, um, you know, and put this show on. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's so frustrating. Repeated cycles in my head bring me down And I've been itching at the back of my head, the crown Would you talk a little bit about, um, I guess, doing it from the distance and then um, maybe a little bit about the struggle with the decision to move back to Virginia? Yeah, so from 20, basically 2015 um, to 2019, I was living in Dallas and my mom was in Virginia and I would, and you know, every stage of Alzheimer's is different. So every stage requires something different, but you know, at the beginning of this time, it was how do you keep your loved one or my mom as independent as possible? Because I mean, she might have Alzheimer's, she might be repeating herself, but she could also like, she knows when you're being like infantilized or like they know when you're like trying to take, of course, you know, their 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 agency away you know mm-hmm. and so how do you preserve that all while keeping her safe was like my my mindset at the beginning of this so it's like yeah let's label i still have the labels on the kitchen cabinets from 2015 right like cool let's label every cabinet so that you know where to find the dishes you want how to preserve their independence and keep their agency and so it started out as labeling cabinets mm-hmm. because that would allow her to put the dishes away and or find the things that she wanted without getting frustrated, right? It started out as like lots of post-it notes to remind Mm -hmm. her where, Mm -hmm. you know, things are or like, you know, don't forget to take your medications. And, you know, in hindsight, you're like, that's way too many post-it notes, but you do what you, you do what What you can with what you know, you know? Um, And so I think in the beginning, it was like, what are the systems so that my mom can still do stuff? Okay, cool. You come back. In a couple of weeks, you realize, oh, she's losing weight. Like, huh, is she eating? So then it became, let's now prep 35 to 40 meals and put them in the freezer and label them so that she can now go in the freezer, read the label, put it in the microwave. And so she has food to eat because I didn't want my mom to not be eating or to continue to lose weight. Yeah. Okay, cool. Come back in a month. You're like, oh, wow. All right. So she is now you know, um, like drowning in her clothes. So this, this visit, we are going to go buy new clothes and, you know, like refurbish her closet so that she can still look presentable when they take her to go to church. Mm -hmm. Okay. This visit, um, CG is bored. We have to figure out new activities. So let's create 
an activity system where she needs to tell me what she does at this time. We've got these puzzles. We've got these workbooks. We've got these latch hooks, right? Like what's going to keep her entertained? And so I, I can go on and on, but I think the headline to share with people is like, I had to be super observant and the things that I noticed then led to like the systems or the solution that I would create. Mm-hmm. And I would do just enough to get me, you know, two to three weeks. Um, and so that when I came back three, two to three weeks later, I could then check to see if it's working. If it's not either re up or do something different. And so you're, I, I think, you know, you, you talk about like fight or flight. Like I was truly like in a high stress high alert place all the time mm-hmm. because you're I was always trying to figure out like okay what does she need how to keep her in the house and then being long distance got really difficult because you know there comes a time when your loved one potentially starts to wander yeah and my mom wasn't a big wanderer but you could tell she was bored inside the house so what that meant was that she was opening the front door mm-hmm. and walking out in the yard and then walking across the street to the neighbor's yeah. house and so that started happening you know late 2018 2019 and it was getting to the point where her, my neighbor was very frustrated but also i was frustrated because now i can only rely on a ring camera I'm like trying my best to keep her in the house, keep her occupied, go watch TV, go eat. Okay, okay. You know, and so like I realized that I could no longer be away from home and like manage her care through a phone. Right. I need to be present. Right. And so in 2019 is when I basically said, Jessica, I need to change my home base. It's not safe, but it's also in my mother's best interest for me to be home. Mm. And that's when I literally like gave up my apartment, all my put all my stuff in storage and I moved back home. Yeah. Um and I said I'm going to work from home and I'm going to be here with her. And at the time, you know, I worked a nonprofit job so I couldn't really afford very much, but I still was able to get a, a like a caregiver to come in for 3 days a week for 4 hours so that I could have someone spend time with her all the while I could get work done. But let's be really clear. After those four hours, it was still all Jessica, you know? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how did you know to do that? How did you know to put notes on the cabinet? How did you know to, you know, make meals? I mean, was this research you're doing or people telling you this? Yeah, a lot of it's trial and error. Um, I, like, you know, at when I was 26 years old, there was no, there's no guidebook. There was no book that I knew to right. get. There was no one really telling me what to do. My only experience of seeing Alzheimer's in real time was watching Grey's Anatomy on TV. Um, But I had no family members. I had no friends that were my age anyway going through this. But I was a teacher. Um, I was an educator. And so you thrive in systems. You thrive in routines. And like before all this, I was like a disciplined meal prepper. My mom was always like eating. It's like I was okay. So what is my mom? What has my mom always liked to do? What does she love to do? And how do I keep those things even, even if I'm not here? Mm-hmm. It was like always the driver. And so, yeah, a lot of it was trial and error. A lot of it was like, okay, we're going to try this whole fr- freezing meals thing and see, see how that works, right? Like, oh, we're going to try, you know, this activity and see if that works. And so a lot of trial and error and a lot of hope and prayer, yeah. you know? You just hope that it works yeah. and hope that nothing happens while you're gone. Yeah. Yeah, so you're an educator. I mean, is that informing your, I don't know, your coping with this? Yeah, I mean, it only got me so far. I think that it informed my orientation to, like, creating solutions. Yeah. What's also gotten me this far, like, you know, and I recognize both the privilege and the responsibility is that, like, I'm an only child. It's always just been me and my mom. And so there was no one else to step in to do this. And so... Absolutely. You figure it out, you know, and, you know, when you grow up with a single mom, the way that I did, you watch someone who was really strong, sacrifice to create all the opportunities and give you as much access as possible. And I, if I think about my experience currently, it's like, oh, I am literally doing the same exact thing for my mom while navigating this disease. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, so me being um really like diligent me creating the things that I did or me flying back every 10 days all of that was my form of sacrifice because that's what I saw my mom do in her own way as she was raising me yeah I love that yeah and not every child does that and not everyone is like as 
altruistic as that, but like that's just how that's just how I I am programmed, mm-hmm. um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, you know, people often ask, like, well, you know, you've given up so much, like this is just a huge sacrifice, and it's like, yeah, but you only get one mile. Yeah, why well, wouldn't die? You know, um, if I were sick, she'd do the same thing for me. Everyone yeah. deserves dignity and respect at every stage of their life. Yeah, I agree. There's a lady in the hospital this week uh, in the ICU. She's mm-hmm. in a place right now where she can't speak. And the the sons have been so steadfast and uh, committed to doing what their mom wanted. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. look, you guys are doing amazing work and you're so committed to this. Like, look, she spent her entire life caring for us and she did all this for us. And, um, so they're like, we have to, we have to do this for mm-hmm. her. And, mm-hmm. um, I understand that. And the, the reality is they don't have to do that for her. They choose yeah. to do that for her. And I think that is just so beautiful. And I, I echo that for you. I think what you're doing, I know I get it. What else would you do? She's your mom. She would do the same for you. And it is still a choice, and I really I appreciate what you're doing for it. Mm-hmm. It is it is hard, and probably really uh-huh. frustrating sometimes. And very uh, much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think people often don't realize the cycle of grief you go through as a caregiver. You know, I think when people think about like end of life and death, they're like, oh yeah, you know, you'll once they die, you'll experience all these things. But when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, especially, you were dealing with grief while your person's still living or not just also but like many of these like terminal illnesses especially if you're like the primary caregiver mm-hmm. you are going through literally losing your person while they're still living yeah um and so i do think that like it's it's bigger than hard right like it's bigger than frustrating it's like you go through the resentment you go through the anger you go through i didn't ask for this mm-hmm. right like you go through all of that and the, the thing that has to be stronger yep. than your grief is your love for that person to say like, okay, and I'm going to get up and try my very best tomorrow, even in, even if I failed today. It's a, yeah, it's an active choice. It is an active choice to get up every day and yeah. do this mm-hmm. and doing it while grieving the person that you once knew, grieving the relationship that you had with them and grieving the person that I thought that I was going to be at this point in my life, all yeah. the while still showing up is just so very much. Mm. It's so heavy. And no one gets that unless you like are doing it too. Right, right. hard for me to ask would you talk about um losing the person that you knew um (laughs) and it seems like it's a losing the person that you knew little little bits at a time and little pieces at a time um would you talk about that a little bit yeah you know i think that it's really hard to see someone who you who i knew as like fiercely independent um, you know, real sassy, you know, whatever she wanted to do, she was going to do, right? Like she was a leader at heart. You know, my mom, yeah, like that's like my mom owned her own business. She created the gospel choir. She had the gospel choir at church. Like she was just someone who, you know, she had a thought in her mind, she was going to do it. And so, you know, to see that, you know, go to see her go from that to now, being fully dependent on me from everything from the water she drinks to the food she eats to how she gets rotated in the bed is really hard because you expect that your mother is going to be still full of wisdom, still Mm -hmm. able to pick up the phone to call you and give you advice or to listen to the hard day that you had. And, you know, I, I, I learned pretty early on that my mom was no longer able to do the mom things, right? Like things would happen in my life and I would call her, but it wouldn't register that this was a thing to celebrate or to, you know, hold space for. Mm. And so that in itself, it's like losing, losing aspects of what you think a mom 
to do is was and is really hard you know yeah. when i look at friends now who all my friends are having kids getting married like do the thing and it's like oh yeah my mom is coming to watch the kids and you're like oh wow how what a privilege right to have your mom come and watch the kids or you know what, what a privilege it is to be frustrated with your dad right now i don't get that right for both yeah. of my, my, my father passed and my mom is like this um so anyway there's there's something around losing the attachment and the connection of like mother and child mm. and then there's also grieving you know and realizing that it's no longer just your mother you are now caring for a patient yeah right who mm -hmm. needs x y and z right. and right. like that and it's something it's like oh my god <laughs> Well, and, no, it's, I didn't ask for that either. Yeah. yeah, and the whole dynamic has changed. So not only do you not have that mother figure as she was before, but and now the the role changed completely, right? 180. Now you're yeah. the caregiver and she's being cared for, yeah. which is so hard for both of you, I'm sure. I, I Well, I've seen it be hard for both of them. I wonder how has your mom been with that? role change i think she is grateful mm -hmm. because i've always treated her with dignity and respect yeah. right i think you know while my mom is nonverbal, the way she holds my hand mm -hmm. and when she can say thank you and she says thank you in the most genuine way you know she's appreciative right or when yeah she could talk and she's just like i'm so grateful for you jesse you know that she knows that this is tough she knows that this is not ideal and yet she still sits in such gratitude. And for that, like, yeah, cool, let's keep going. You know, yeah, like, yeah. Um, I think if my mom, maybe if my mom didn't have that orientation with me, I might feel different, but I, I can tell that my mom knows this is tough and she, she knows the sacrifices, even if she can't say it. And at the end of the day, she is so grateful to have me here and she says thank you in her own ways, whether it's mm. her hand squeezes and her eyes, or if she can verbally say it, she will. Yeah, you know the uh, the work I do at the hospital is, um, you know, it can be hard, and um, I say to people a lot, like, I need a thank you like once a month to get me through. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that your mom can can give you that. Um, yeah, because it it does seem like and. You know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you do, at least on some level, really love the job of caring for your mom. And still, it's nice to have a thank you from time to time. Do you love it? It seems like you do. I don't know. Ah, love is strong word. I, <laughs> I love my mom. Yeah, yeah. I love my mom, and I love feeling like I'm doing something right. Mm. And I love that, like, I loved like advocating and getting what I needed being listened to. Right. Like, okay. So mm -hmm. like there's, there's that. I do not love changing depends. Yeah. I do not love having to stand and feed her for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. I do not love her being in pain and me not being able to figure out what it is because she can't tell me oh, where she's God. in pain. Yeah. And so I think like, I love the idea of being my mother's person. Mm -hmm. I do not love the idea of having to fight and advocate and show up and to navigate systems that do not protect or, you know, hold us in this current space and time. Yeah. That is exhausting. Having to describe to people what she's experienced as like a dementia patient to like hope that we're being believed because people very much write off dementia patients to have to be like, oh my gosh, I don't want to go to the hospital because she's not going to be treated fairly like that. I hate Mm. It's awful. It it's is terrible. Um, and you know, I don't mm. love not having the resources and money to just you know snap my fingers for this to be better. Yeah, yeah. It's like a love hate relationship. Yeah. <laughs> you said earlier when you feel like you failed that day or had a had a difficult day, and then just waking up the next day and doing it again or getting back, kind of like getting back on the horse. Okay. Um. Would you talk about that a little bit about feeling like you've not done well in a day and what that is like for you? Yeah. You know, I think a lot of caregivers struggle when they're just like, oh my gosh, like I'm not perfect. Or like this didn't go right. Or like I totally, I failed my person. And 
this might just be my natural orientation as someone who like leads and trains and develops people. But like, yeah, you're going to fail at everything. Perfectionism is a terrible social construct that like doesn't exist. That's like that's that, that's not not real. Really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that for me as a caregiver, I learned early on that there was very little within my control. I, I can control very few things. And the things that I can't control is like, you know, what I choose to, how I choose to react mm -hmm. and then what I choose to do differently the next day um, to like have a better outcome or to like strengthen whatever I wanted to be true. And so I think that has always been my orientation. It's just like a, hey, you get up and try again. Right? Like me, me messing up today doesn't make me any less of a caregiver. Mm -hmm. Me failing today doesn't make me like a terrible person. It, yeah. it makes me human, right? Like my mom, when she started falling, and I'll never forget being like, I'm doing everything possible. I just, I don't know how to get her up off the floor. And someone mm -hmm. who has dementia, like at some point it's, it's straight up dead weight. Yeah. Um, and that's difficult. And I, I like, I remember being like, but I don't want to call the fire department because I don't want them to judge me. I don't want them to think that I'm a terrible caregiver. Oh. And I had to snap out of that. Yeah. Because it's just like, a, you, Jessica, no, you were trying to get your mom up. And because she didn't have the strength to hold herself up, yeah. she fell. Right. It's not because you pushed her on the ground, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But you know, like you think you go through this whole cycle of like, oh my gosh, now will people think that I'm I can't keep her safe at home? Well, be, anyway, that's an example. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. Yeah. Yeah, I say this to say like, how do I do it? I think it's it's realizing that like failing today does not define me as a caregiver. Mm -hmm. What does define me as a caregiver is do I choose to get up and try something different? Yeah. Um, and that's how I, I navigate that. And this idea of uh, sorting through what you can control and what you can't control is, um, I mean, I think it's key for life, but um, is key for all this kind of difficult work. Where did you get that? That wisdom? Yeah. <laughs> I've always been wise beyond my years, Cody. I like, <laughs> but um, no, in all, in all seriousness, I think it just comes from... When you're an only child, that's a high achieving only child that, you know, went to an Ivy League under, like you, you, I spend a lot of time in high stress situations. Yeah. Um, I grew up in like a, a space where it's like, you don't bring home anything less than an A, right? Like, so anyway, you, <laughs> I, 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 I probably learned some really bad habits growing <laughs> up in terms of like being perfectionist. No, no. Um, because, you know, you got to be perfect to, to, to get all the accolades and all the achievements. And so I would say, honestly, growing up that I was not that wise. I did what I had to do to get in the doors that I wanted to get into. Mm -hmm. And I think as you get a little bit older and you start working with other people and you start building like greater perspective, of like, oh, the world isn't, isn't completely cutthroat and like high <laughs> achieving. And there's different times again. You're like, oh, wait, I like that life. I like how that feels. And I think I, I, I just started to like pick up on different habits. And in that, because I worked in education, because I was a coach of people, you start to, you start to slow down and get more curious. You start to like ask yourself, why do I do that? Where's that come from? Um, and so I think that whole process of like deconstructing when I think about productivity, deconstructing when I think about achievement, deconstructing what it looks like to like work with other people and be like in a space of curiosity really helped me as a caregiver operate in that way. But I for sure wasn't always that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm a slow learner. It's taken me a long time to come to that realization. Yeah, it's hard for me to let go of trying to control things that are outside of my control. Fisher. Yeah. I think to that too is for whom are you doing stuff for? Right, like, and this might just be because I'm an Enneagram 8, I am an ISTJ, Myers-Briggs, and I'm a Taurus. So some of this might just be woven into, like, the fabric of Jessica, right? Like, but I think once I got out of the high-achieving mode, I quickly became less about pleasing others mm -hmm. and more about, like, what's best for me? Mm -hmm. What's best for my mom? And when you think of it from that perspective, it actually changes where I put the energy and focus. It's yeah. like, a, I think we get so caught up in like what other people think or like what it needs to look like. That actually, that makes things harder for people. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think that goes back to what you were talking about, about being a good caregiver and, you know, failing as a caregiver, which I mean, 
yeah, I don't know if I would describe anything that you've done as failing necessarily, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a, um, the feeling that you have of not, not being perfect all the time. And, yeah. um, well, I don't know. That's just going to be really hard to try to be perfect all the time is really, really hard. There's no game to win here. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that's really important. I mean, if people are out there listening to this and they're caring for somebody who has dementia or caring for somebody who has anything, just knowing that, that you're going to feel like sometimes you're going to feel like you failed and that's okay. And, um, that the, the real test of you as a caregiver is getting back up the next morning and doing your best. <laughs> yeah. said you put uh, your mom on hospice for the first time last year year before last may 23 may 16 2023 23 and then <laughs> i think i heard you say on the instagram that you uh, 22 sorry 22 <laughs> that yeah yeah 22 that she uh that she graduated from hospice she was discharged yeah march 2023 yeah mm-hmm. so almost a year on hospice all right so I, I mean, I know a little bit. I'm in the inpatient setting all the time, but I know a little bit about that uh, process. Would you talk a little bit about um, what it took for your mom to be able to be on hospice, if that was uh, a helpful service for her, and then the idea of being discharged from hospice? I'm also using discharge very intentionally because it didn't feel like a graduation it, it does like not we were literally kicked off they, um, they, <laughs> they use that term well, to try to be nice and i think i don't i agree I, it is not yeah uh, it probably doesn't feel like a graduation stop stop lying to people um so let's rewind basically everything started to decline january 2022 and before this you know i didn't really know very much about hospice but just like I knew that you call in hospice when someone's dying, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you call in hospice when it's like end of life, which is like what most people understand hospice to be like, yep. you know, you've, you've given up was like my my perception of it. But yeah. then when I started to watch, you know, having a really strong community on social media, you start to see other people who were living with Alzheimer's disease who are transitioning to hospice. And you're like, oh, wait, what? This looks this looks like a lot of support. This looks like your mother's still living or like, you know, you're getting a lot of people to come in your home. I was like, oh, what is this? And so I had to do my own research. Like I had to like spend some time understanding hospice because, you know, at this point, we're now March, 2022. My mom has been falling so much, like losing her balance. We've been in the hospital a couple of times. Her, her, like, obviously her mobility is changing. And so I remember calling her PCP and I remember saying, you know, her appetite's changing. She's losing all this weight, all these, like she's unable to like sit herself up. Like that feels so new. Like she's not like, standing up anymore. Every, like everything felt like it was going downhill quick. And she was like, it sounds like your mom would be a good candidate for hospice. And that, and that was a phone call. I'll never forget. I got in my car and I bawled. Mm. So I was like, oh my gosh. She said she was a candidate for hospice. That means you have six months or less and then she's going to die. Like it was, I mean, in hindsight, very dramatic, but also very real um, to people's experiences because yeah. you equate hospice with immediate death. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, fast forward. Um, I knew that my mom wasn't getting better with PT and OT. Like she truly was no longer ambulatory. Um, at this point, like I was now doing more soft foods my mom was very lethargic. And so I was like, let's get an evaluation. And that nurse came May 16, 2022. I had, my, I had like five pages of questions. And she was like, oh yeah, we're gonna admit your mom onto hospice. And I said, okay, okay. But what you soon learn is that hospice, be, and it's it's not just about death. What you learn, what I learned in this process is like, oh, Jessica, you were choosing comfort over extreme measures. Mm-hmm. What you're actually saying is your mother's been in the hospital now four times. You don't want to put her through the trauma of 
the emergency room, all the trauma that comes with being a dementia patient in a hospital. Jessica, you no longer want to put your mother through poking and prodding and paramedics and all of this. You actually want her to be whole. You want her to be comfortable. Her being put on hospice did not, like she was still able to take all of her medications until I chose to stop them um, because they weren't helpful anymore, right? But like no one was ever forcing us to do anything. It was always about what's going to allow your mom to be the most comfortable and allow her to be like thriving at home. Right. And so I learned very quickly, you get a nurse that comes and checks your vitals every week and like, you know, how is she doing? You know, being like the eyes on the ground. I had a CNA who helped with bathing twice a week and like changing her clothes, changing the sheets. I had, if I wanted to use it, the chaplain for my own, just like spiritual guidance and even for my mom's spiritual guidance, if we wanted to use it. We also had access to a social worker to help us like navigate systems within our local resources in our community. We also had the hospice volunteer. The, the, they would come and spend, it was like literally two hours a week that I could then focus on getting my like my job work done. Um, and then she also had music therapy and massage therapy. And so I share this because people don't realize all of those components Wait. are part of hospice care. Right. And what I noticed in like the like 10 months my mom was on hospice, my mom actually like, sure, she slowed down, but my mom stabilized. Like she hit a really strong plateau because we had gotten rid of all the other stressors. We had gotten rid of all the ups and downs and the unknowns and the pulling and pushing and all like that is exhausting on the body, no matter what disease you have. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was getting supplies in the mail. Like I was getting briefs. I was getting bed patterns. I was getting powders. I was getting creams. I need a Hoyer lift. They sent one the next day. They send you a new hospital bed. I had a wheelchair. Like I need a suction machine, all of that. And so I, I learned very quickly that, you know, sure, you have to qualify and, you know, should the disease take its natural course, your loved one will die within six months or less. Like that's of course the phrase, but I quickly learned that like removing all the toxic, stressful stuff allowed my mom to stabilize and be more comfortable. And she obviously lived past six months. Right. So much so that she, you know, was no longer losing weight because I had adjusted her feeding mm-hmm. and like her mm-hmm. meals. Mm-hmm. She was no longer like lethargic because we stopped taking blood pressure medications that was dragging her down. She was no longer falling because we I got the tools that I needed to keep her in the bed and like to take care of her in that way. And so all this fast forward to March 23. Because she wasn't losing any weight or significant amount of weight because by all accounts, she looked stable. They basically say you no longer meet the guidelines, Medicare guidelines to remain on hospice. Um, You're going to be discharged. And I use the word discharge because it feels like the rug is literally being pulled from underneath you. Totally. You go from having weekly support, someone to call to check in on all the things to literally having nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and my experience, I would say, is way more traumatic because the, the social worker literally was like, here's some numbers to call to get some equipment. Um, you can go get your, you can go down to the equipment connection and get a used bed. You know, you go from having something brand new to now something, oh, you can go call them yourself. And you're like, what? Yeah. Right. Like, oh, um, you know, you lose having a nurse. You got to figure out how to get to your PCPs off it. Like my, my transition off was terrible. Yeah. What should have happened is like, uh, okay, here are the resources for palliative care. It's not the same as hospice, but you can still have someone who can get their eyes on your mother, like in the home. Right. I'm surprised that didn't happen. They don't have, did this hospice agency not have a palliative care service? The palliative service here in our town, they stopped doing home palliative. They just, worked with hospital patients Gotcha. so because the agency i was working with she gave me some phone numbers but couldn't tell me the reputation the quality right. so i had to do all that in addition to my mom being discharged they literally put the burden of how to help my mom on me yeah so you're removing everything they come and get that stuff the next day everything goes away and now it's up to me to figure it all out again it feels like you were in the wild wild west yeah. by yourself yeah. 
It's interesting because when we talk to patients, patients in the hospital, we're referring a lot of patients to hospice. First of all, it's it's like you say, people have this idea that if we're referring them to hospice, we think they're they're about to die, like now, and um, that's not the case. But people are terrified when we do when we do refer them to hospice. They're terrified, and so part of the selling point is, and I I'm starting to feel bad about it now. But part of the s- selling point is, look. If they get better, they can come off of hospice. They don't have to, you know, I don't know what it is like dangling this, this carrot out in front of them. Like, well, you're bad now, but maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe you're not dying. Maybe you don't qualify. Like maybe you're not going to qualify for hospice later on. And it's this way of like softening the referral that, I don't know, it is what it is, but, um, but it, it does help people feel better, but I've never really thought about because we've obviously seen people in the hospital that have come back because they have been on hospice and graduated. And, um, I've never really thought about, I know how much support hospice is. I know how much they can give to you, how, what a robust service it is. And I've never really thought about the day that you discharge from hospice. They just, I mean, you can't have it anymore. Um, and how, of course they bounce back to the hospital because they don't have all that support anymore that keeps them at home. Um, you know, I, I get it. It's Medicaid and our Medicare, uh, guidelines and we don't, and no, no hospice agency wants to do Medicare fraud, but yeah, that is, uh, that it's, that's really something I've never really thought about before. Um, so she, she discharged from hospice last year. In, mm-hmm. in March, March. Mm-hmm. and you've just been having to manage at home since. Yeah. So between March, March to October of this year, um, you know, you cross your fingers and hope everything's okay. Her visits with her PCP have been virtual, like when I needed something, but not not like ongoing support. Um, and so we went up until October, and then my mom we had our first like hospital experience and um, I, I advocated for home health, which is um, for, for skilled nursing to help with a wound that she has. Okay. But home health is temporary, right? But what do you get with home health? You get a, you get a nurse that comes every week, yep. you get a CNA. And so it's like, I guess it's in hospice, but I've got hands that are coming yeah. to the home. More again. than nothing. Yeah. Correct. Um, and so, that was October, and then I started the palliative at home process um, in November. So I've only seen that nurse practitioner once, but now we have palliative care um, uh, because I still the goal is to keep my mom out of the hospital. Right, like that's the goal. Right. How's that been? I mean, I know you've only seen her once, but has it been helpful? You know, I do think I, I do, I, my personal opinion, I will scream to the cows come home is that like people who work in hospice and palliative care, they actually, they truly do see you as a human yeah. and as someone who is holding grief and the burden of caregiving. And when I tell you that nurse practitioner, she's only been here once, but the the time that she was here, I felt so heard. I felt mm-hmm. so seen. I felt so listened to. Because she wasn't, we're not at the point of trying to cure anything. Right. We're just trying to understand what your person needs yeah. and what do I need to be able to take care of her well. And so how has it been? It's like, I just think that like palliative and hospice care, doctors and nurses, they're just a lot more thoughtful in their words. They're more curious in their questions. They slow down to really like center what you need. And part of me is like, why can't all healthcare providers <laughs> be like this, right? Yeah. Because you're just like, I didn't feel like I was being rushed. Mm-hmm. She took her time. Yeah. Okay, what's next? And that, that whether they know it or not, that goes such a long way. Yeah. Such a long way. So it's been good so far. Listen to Jessica, everybody. Yeah. It's important. Um, yeah, I, I always say our, our doctors are, doctors but they're communicators first they they really are they're and i forget it until i do a family meeting with one of our other doctors in the hospital and i'm reminded about 
how good our <laughs> our palliative care doctors are. It's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's striking. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I guess I'm wondering if you think your mom will be back on hospice anytime soon. How how is she doing? And oh yeah, hundred percent. You know, I think in hindsight. My mom, I put her on, I, I, I freaked out too soon, but with dementia, you never know. Because with, yeah. when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, but many forms of dementia, you can have a significant decline. No one's going to see this video. I don't know why I use my hands, but like you can have a significant <laughs> decline. Um, and then there's a plateau, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, decline, stair step, yep. plateau. Yeah. And they're pretty like, it's this, the, the steps can be really long, mm-hmm. you know? And so I didn't, I didn't realize that what I was experiencing spring 2022 was just was going to lead to a plateau i believe her going on hospice the first time helped helped us plateau of course right and i'm grateful yes right um and what i will say is that um i will likely i have one more big doctor's appointment happening this upcoming week but depending on what happens at that doctor's appointment my mom qualifies for hospice now okay she absolutely does. And so I will put her on hospice within the next two to three months. Okay. If not earlier. Um, and I know because what I, I know what I know, there's no coming off a of hospice this time. Yeah. Um, and so that just, it changes your whole perspective um, in many ways. I don't know how long she'll be, but yeah, there's no coming back this time. What are you, what is it that you know? Well, I think that from a science standpoint, my mother is very much a 7D or a 7E on the fast scale. E most days. Uh, but that's the inability to hold her neck up, the inability of her to sit up straight. Okay. Um, she's no longer verbal, right? Um, the, the controlling of swallowing, like all of that is starting to decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom is way more frail, much smaller, right? And so at some point, you don't have that much going on there. Um, and she's now more susceptible to infections and everything else. And yep. so all of that from a, just like a what the research says. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, as her daughter, I also see that she's, I mean, she's slowing down. Yeah. Um, my mom had a very different vitality and energy about her the first time. Uh, and I, even though I like, you know, the first time I went, I planned the funeral. I visited funeral homes. <laughs> like, I got my shit in order. Of course you um, did. <laughs> And they were like, your mom is okay. Like, your mom, your mom will be fine. Yeah. But now, you know, every day I go in there and I check to make sure she's still breathing. Mm-hmm. Every day I'm just like, okay, we woke up today. Yeah. Awesome. You know? Um, so, yeah, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hospice. The hospice choice feels different this go round mm-hmm. because I can see it now in a different way. Yeah. Um, and I'm a huge fan of early admission. So I yeah. know she qualifies, but because I'm trying to get to this doctor's appointment one more time, I have to wait. But as soon as we get past that, we're going to get her back on hospice for sure. What's it like for you to wake up every morning and check to see if your mom is breathing? Yeah. You know, there's, there's, it's a really, uh, I joke about this sometimes on social media and like people who who are in it, they get it where it's just like you peek in and you're like, okay, do I see the chest? I see her chest rising today, mm-hmm. you know? And so on one point you kind of go in with your breath, holding your breath. Okay. Well, will, will today be the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, you're just like, yep, it's where we are, you know? Like, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's this, you're holding both fear mm-hmm. and just like the understanding of that being your reality at the same, like, like a really interesting duality there. Um, totally. But yeah, I think, I think because my mom has been on hospice before, because I'm fairly comfortable talking about death and because I know what the end of life process is going to look like for someone with like a, you know, pretty calm Alzheimer's disease mm. situation. Um, I think it's, I try to use a better word, but like, yeah, you're just like, I think I've come to terms with like, okay, this is where we are. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, my mom, my mom might not, you know, be here soon. And I've got to just share. I think if anything, there's a sense of gratitude. Mm-hmm. I know this is like, you know, every day she wakes up, you're like, thank you. Okay, cool. I got an extra day. Yeah. 
every day I see her breathing, it's like, oh, awesome. It's like magic time. Because I wasn't, I wasn't expecting this a year ago. So I'm for sure not expecting it now. So you take, I think people take life for granted, obviously with you, but like wow. when you've been on hospice and when you see the end and when you know the disease, I think there's a different level of appreciation for any extra day you have with your loved one mm -hmm. um, because you recognize that the end is closer than the beginning for sure. Yeah. Losing a parent is hard, period, right? And yeah. then losing someone that you've cared for for 10 years <laughs> is also really hard. Um, and I think that like there is no system that I can create. There is no routine that I can create. There is nothing that I can do to um, just stop to stop the the train of Alzheimer's disease. And my mom is going to die. People don't think of it like this, but Alzheimer's disease is a terminal illness. Yeah. When you get that diagnosis, you don't know whether it's going to be four years, 10, 15 years. No one's going to die. Like they are slowly dying. And I think um, it's been slow for a long time. And you're also like, okay, shit. Like she's still, she, she's, <laughs> she's going to go, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah. No matter how is. prepared I am, no matter how much you know, nothing prepares you for the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying so. It's one of those um, one of those things you can't control. I wonder if there are things, anything that you want to say. I don't know what would you what would you say advice to people who are on this on this Alzheimer train or dementia train. What would I say to people who are on the dementia train? You know, I think the first is that receiving a diagnosis is not the end. You know, even what I shared earlier is like, I, you know, I just hit the ground running. I didn't let myself feel, but I, I would offer for other people that like, let yourself feel the emotions, let yourself like, you know, be angry, let yourself be sad. Like there's not, there's no shame. There's nothing wrong with, um, what you're experiencing in the moment. Like if someone had told me that what I was feeling was grief, I would have probably reacted very differently. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to tell you that like, you were going to experience grief very early on and to let yourself, don't push it down, but to hold space for it. Um, I also say that the diagnosis is not the end because there's still so many more memories to be made. There's still much joy to be had. And like, yes, things are going to have to evolve. You are going to have to look at your traditions, things you used to do all the time a little bit differently, but that doesn't mean that your loved one doesn't deserve to have the opportunity you know, to laugh and experience things, right? But you have to make the choice to adjust, to evolve. And then honestly, like you are truly doing the best you can with what you know. And yeah. you can choose to um, say that you can't do this or like you don't want to do this. Or you can say like, okay, I, I'm doing what I can and tomorrow I commit to trying something different or trying better to get to a different outcome. And the last thing I'll say is... This disease impacts everyone differently. Not everyone can care for their loved one at home. Yeah. In fact, 10 out of 10 recommend, but also know how hard it is. And so, you know, you are no less of a caregiver. You are no less of someone living with dementia if you have to rely on significant help from other family, friends, and or like paid care. You are no less of a caregiver if you have to put your loved one in you know, memory care, assisted living, any sort of other facility, right? Like you are no less of a caregiver if you are not the primary caregiver and you're just contributing financially from afar, right? Like all of those things, all of those choices, those things that you could do still make you a caregiver yeah. and your person, right, needs you to be engaged and present and that can look different and that's okay too, oh. right? There's no like... There's no winning winning category for how you do dementia. Ah. There's only just like a, you know, did you keep going? Thank you did for you saying that. Did you not give up? Thank you. I see a lot in the hospital, the family isn't there for whatever reason. Part of my job is to look out for assumptions. And, you know, the assumption that a lot of people make is, well, they don't care. You know, the, that family doesn't care about that person or um, they're lazy or, you know, whatever it is. 
And the reality is sometimes people can't just show up, you know, sometimes they have to stay and work their job so they can pay for this goddamn care. And the, the judgment that we feel or the assumptions we're making are not helping anybody. And, um, the caregiver that stays and works their job so they can pay for the care is just as valid as the caregiver who is staying at home and showing yep. up at the hospital. So yeah, thank you for that. Cause both are hard. <laughs> both are really hard. I can't imagine how hard it is for somebody to know that their loved one is in the hospital and they have to be at a job that they don't like so that they can pay oh. for that. Uh, so, um, yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, the last thing I've been asking people is how do you want to be remembered? And, um, your mom's not here to tell me, but how will you remember your mom? Oh, good question. You know, while she can't speak, I do know that my, how, how does my mom want to be remembered? Yeah, sure. and how will I remember? But I, I do think there's something around, you know, my mom, CG was very bold and flamboyant and extra and loud. And, you know, I think she, she, she wants to be, she would want to be remembered as someone who deeply cares about other people who would mm -hmm. be willing to, you know, give up all that she had to make sure that she could show up for you. Um, she wants to be remembered as someone who, you know, was a business owner and was successful and, you know, did her best. Um, I think she would also want to be remembered as someone who, yeah, someone who always made a way out of no way, right? Like, I think that she took great pride in figuring it out, making it work and raising me as her daughter. And I think, you know, she would want people to know that like she's constant and she don't take no mess and she, you know, didn't in life and she definitely won't in death. So yeah. <laughs> um, like, don't come for her or, or me really. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think that my mom, my mom, my mom leaves a legacy of such strong, like, thoughtfulness and care and intentionality and i want to remember that and i think she would want to be remembered for that as well yeah one of the most beautiful things i think people can do is live out the beautiful parts of the people that we love that have gone and um you said she would give up everything to be there for you i mean if you're not doing that i don't know what you're doing i mean that is uh, -huh. uh you are living that legacy mm -hmm. i appreciate that yeah um, thank you that's really really lovely um all right i think we did it <laughs> i think you got a lot of content Cody. oh my god i think y'all yeah, are good yeah. <laughs> thank you for for sticking with me um of course thank you for sharing everything you're doing and thank you for what you're doing for your mom it's beautiful yeah thank you very much thank you it was good chatting with you yeah you too Thank you so much to Jessica for sharing yourself and your mother with us. Thank you for caring for your mother and thank you for your willingness to share the struggle and the joy that it is to be a full-time caregiver. To learn more from Jessica about caregiving and dementia, you can follow her on Instagram at Career Caregiving Collide or check out her website, jessicacguthrie.com, where you can get in touch, learn more about her story, and find resources and workshops. As always, if you or a loved one are living with a serious illness, you do have a story to tell. Let us help capture that story. Get in touch with us through social media or on our website at dttypodcast.com. This is Dying to Tell You.